What are the many obstacles facing the working class in the midst of the changes made under the COVID pandemic? Do the COVID vaccines represent a salvation or an attack on ordinary people around the world? Does the fourth industrial revolution, artificial intelligence and other novelties benefit the ruling class rather than the working class? What can the left learn from the result of the Freedom Convoy? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we bring you a special edition of the show devoted to the challenges facing the labor movement in the midst of the major redress of how we do work and how the people are addressing forms of tyranny in an emerging technocracy. We first bring Professor Anthony Hall to the program to address the changes he fears face humankind with the changes brought about particularly by the pandemic and how, in his view, labor and the left in its current construction will not save us. Then in our second half hour, we assemble a panel discussion of major thinkers and labor activists, Professor Richard Wolff, Nora Loretto, and Paul Moist, about where hope lies in future engagements at home and on the world stage. On this week's program, will Gates, Rockefeller, Musk, and Klaus Schwab prevail in the class war? Activists and thinkers speak out. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 27th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. A respirator specialist says surgical masks don't meet the legal definition of a mask, but rather are, quote, breathing barriers, unquote. He was emphatic they are shedding microplastics small enough to be inhaled. A data analysis of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in Kansas-revealed counties with mask mandates had higher mortality rates than those without mask mandates. Once inhaled or consumed, microplastics can be found in your bloodstream in particles small enough to cross membrane barriers. It's also found in an infant's first stool, suggesting maternal exposure an animal study found nanopolystyrene particles in fetal brain, liver, kidney, and lung tissue 24 hours after maternal exposure. That comes from the article, Microplastics from Masks Found Deep in Lungs of the Living, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted May 25th, originally published on the Mercola website. 
The former U.S. Secretary of State and architect of the Cold War rapprochement between the U.S. and China told the gathering of elites that it would be fatal for the West to get swept up in the mood of the moment and forget the proper place of Russia in the European balance of power. Negotiations need to begin in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be easily overcome. Ideally, the dividing line should be a return to the status quo ante. Pursuing the war beyond that point would not be about the freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself, he said. The architect of the detente with China under the Nixon administration suggested that status quo ante means, quote, how things were before, unquote, implying that Ukraine should accept a peace deal to restore the situation on February 24th, where Russia formally controlled the Crimea Peninsula and informally controlled part of the Donetsk region in East Ukraine. That comes from the article, Fact Checkers, Furious After Henry Kissinger, says Ukraine should cede territory for peace with Russia. Posted May 25th, originally published on Zero Hedge. U.S. news outlets are owned by Wall Street billionaire oligarchs who give so-called journalists the script to report, making TV reporters paid actors who know where their bread is buttered. The U.S. media have proven to be more dangerous and warlike than the Pentagon, as shown in past U.S. wars, Vietnam, Iraq, Syria, Gaza, Yemen, Afghanistan. Now these billionaires are censoring social media, so we are censored in doing personal research. The U.S. has shut down Russian media like TASS and Russia Today, or RT, to prevent Americans from hearing the other side and making up our own minds who is lying and who is telling the truth. What is the U.S. afraid of if they are telling the truth? That comes from the article, The 16 Biggest Lies the U.S. Government Tells America About the Ukraine War, by Richard Oakes, posted May 25th, originally published in Covert Action magazine. The only reason the media is now so belatedly connecting, if very indirectly, quote, a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion, unquote, of Ukraine, and what happened in Iraq is because of Bush's mistake. Had it not happened, the establishment media would have continued to ignore any such comparison, and those trying to raise it would continue to be dismissed as conspiracy theorists or as apologists for Putin. The implication of what Bush said, even for those mockingly characterizing it in Freudian terms, is that he and his co-conspirator, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, are war criminals and that they should be on trial at The Hague for invading and occupying Iraq. Everything the current U.S. administration is saying against Putin and every punishment meted out on Russia and ordinary Russians can be turned around and directed at the United States and Britain. That comes from the article, Russia-Ukraine War, George Bush's Admission of His Crimes in Iraq Was No Gaffe, by Jonathan Cook, posted May 25th, originally published on Middle East Eye. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In the long-standing class war, the modes by which the working class manifest their solidarity seems to be shifting. The work environment has shifted since the days of the Second Revolution, where workers had a critical role. Charging ahead into the 21st century and rammed through with new technologies, some concerns have been raised not only about the nature of work, but of the end of the middle class. With the Great Reset being presented to the people of Earth as the key to preventing the pandemic from causing the devastation it did before, we're told, among other things, that we will own nothing and be happy. Technologies hiving our privacy, artificial intelligence, robots, and other novelties may have convinced our bosses that they don't need us anymore. With all this and more on the table, we really need to question what, if anything, organized labor has actually done for us. Our next guest has been paying close attention to the coronavirus and how it has been used to propel us into the fourth industrial revolution. We'll discuss where labor and the left generally have some, if any, utility in their existence. Dr. Anthony Hall is a professor emeritus of globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. He's also a regular contributor to global research. In the coming interview, Dr. Hall makes comments about his research as a scholar into the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly the views about the vaccine in question meant supposedly to remedy COVID-19, and also about the recent Freedom Convoy. And some of his remarks might be disturbing to some listeners. Please be advised his views do not necessarily reflect the views of the station. Also, he is not recognized as a healthcare expert. The fourth industrial revolution, I mean, COVID-19 seems to have been the major catalyst for the kind of changes that it would bring about. Uh, what are the major changes that this revolution would bring to our lives? And, and what are some of the downsides, in your view, to this process? Well, the uh, downside is that uh, our rights as individuals have been eviscerated. Uh, think of the concept that uh, it's all right for the government to force whatever it wants to into our body. We don't have concepts of body auto uh, autonomy. We don't have bodily autonomy protected. Our individual rights are no more. Our employers can impose the tremendous coercion of saying, unless you take this substance, you can't have a job. And if you can't have a job, we live in a capitalist society. You need money in this society. And there's a lot of benefits that come from paid employment. So either take the jab or give up your paid em employment. That, uh, the coercive nature of that is enormous. So you're talking uh, there specifically was, about the, the, vaccine, the vaccines then? I'm talking about the vaccines. I could talk about other elements of it, for instance, the lockdowns were another medical experiment. We were told it was supposed to make things better. But now in retrospect, we see it, you know, empowered Walmart and 
Amazon and Costco and cause decimation to small businesses, to the middle class. Uh, you know, we were frightened into mask wearing at first that seemed appropriate, but increasingly it became clear masks do great damage. They deprive you of oxygen. They're breeding grounds for bacteria, bacterial infections. They're especially difficult on children who are just learning about talking and facial expression. And uh, the restrictions yeah, have the been, you know, not just ill-advised, but actually harmful. That's then we get the, the, any, any medical records or? Uh, and then, you know, the whole concept that, uh, you know, the idea our, our medical life was, was private. Uh, our health was a, a private area. So now we're just opened up into into a realm where where uh, you know it becomes public knowledge and and we're monitored and we're there, there's surveillance uh, uh, the um, effect on the economy of the lockdowns has been great you know we're we're experiencing a huge increase in money printing our central bankers are printing all kinds of money and charging us interest and uh, so uh, the effort we're told is to create sort of a financial crash so we can create a great reset. Uh, in the great reset, there's going to be social credit scoring. There's going to be cashless money exchanges. There's going to be uh, digital, uh, digital ID. And the situation uh, seems that, you know, we can find ourselves basically in a, Biodigital prison. If we're not behaving correctly, uh, our income can be modified, can be reduced. We can even be brought to, to the point where we can't buy food. Uh, the uh, agenda seems to be to remove a lot of the population and to transform the survivors through this fourth revolution, through transhumanism into new kinds of entities, you know, we, we change uh, uh, the genetic nature of our very species. What is that? Is there a, a name for that? Is, is there a crime for that? We have a crime called genocide, a, a new word that was created in 1944. Do we need a new word to describe the fact that these jabs, these injections change our DNA? They're you know, they're not therapy. There's nothing therapeutic about it. They're transforming our DNA. What, what is the reason to want to do that? Uh, is it to create platforms where we can well, have nanotechnology inserted into doesn't it? doesn't change the genetics, right? It's not a, like a- No, that is not true. That is one of the many lies. And the lies, you know, that there's no real uh, reliable means to assess where COVID-19 is. PCR tests have proven to be inaccurate. They were used to create panic, to create uh, hugely inflated uh, descriptions of something called COVID cases, mm -hmm. positive cases. Uh, but what does that mean? Uh, uh, the PCR test was said by its own inventor, Kerry Mullis, to be uh, inappropriate for the kind of diagnosis it's being used for. Uh, then uh, the whole rules about reporting deaths was changed. 
so that many different kinds of death would be uh, labeled as COVID deaths. So build up the case numbers, build up the death numbers, create panic. This panic is added to by lockdowns. Uh, and then we're told the only way out of this is this vaccine, a vaccine that now we now see it's not really not a vaccine. It's an injection and it didn't work. It doesn't reliably stop infection. It doesn't stop transmission. But it, what does happen is that many deaths and injuries arise from it. So have there so, been in the past, I mean, there have been uh, vaccines given out before. I mean, uh, is this the case of all vaccines or, or, or this so-called vaccine that's... Uh, that, well, that, that little thing you throw in there, this so-called vaccine, it is not a vaccine. Vaccines are, are the idea of vaccines is it, 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 it imbues us with immunity. Mm -hmm. This doesn't do that. It stops transmission of this uh, pathogen. This doesn't do that. In fact, this vaccine builds up the pathogens, the spike proteins, which uh, invade the cardiovascular system and proliferate and create blood clots and create heart attacks and create myocarditis. Uh, and uh, aim at the fertility organs of both women and men. Uh, so, you know, mandating this, saying you have to take it to keep your job, for instance, and people don't want to take it. They have very good reason to not want to take it. It's putting your life on the line. Mm -hmm. Now, how many people have been killed by the injection? Is it tens of thousands? Is it hundreds of thousands? Is it millions? Uh, many people counted in the hundreds of thousands, even in the United States, let alone in the world. So the fact that the system was not created so we could reliably count the deaths as they occurred in this experiment, because there was never a chance for proper testing, it only has emergency youth authorization. You would think there would be great attentiveness to trace what is really happening as a result of the infusion of this injection into so many billions of arms. But that's not the case. We're being, it's being shielded and hidden from us at every turn what is really happening. The thing is, you know, fraud is just permeated through permeated throughout it. It involves, you know, the coming together of the media and governments in a kind of partnership which is clearly leading in a very totalitarian direction. Okay. Uh, the, the, the downside of, of this whole experience, you know, the crisis is presented as some kind of act of God rather than a manufactured COVID crisis. And, uh, uh, and it's, 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 it's just a lie. And it, it seemed to all be about somehow getting these injections as, in as many arms as possible and these injections don't really address, you know, the stopping of the pathogen. The uh, yeah. they don't really address stopping the, uh, you know, the movement of the uh, pathogen through the population. So, what was the reason of doing of doing it in the first place? Especially giving it to children who have very uh, high rates. They don't get sick from COVID, and they don't, you know, they're not prone to get sick and certainly not die. What is the advantage of giving them 
uh, this injection, you know, giving pregnant I mean, women this injection. I know you've definitely, yeah, you, I mean, you pointed to things like the VARES in the case that all these people have uh, died, but I've, I've also talked to some experts on the other side who are saying, no, I mean, it's never been demonstrated that they were caused by the vaccine. It was always something else. Uh, but yeah, well, you know, you, you, you're, you can take a middle ground here, but the truth isn't always, uh, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And those of us who, you know, have been working on it every day, to the exclusion of pretty much all else uh, have been tracing this. And, you know, I, I publish most of my articles at uh, Global Research CA, and I don't think anything I have said would be in contradiction to how Michelle Chausadowski, you know, who's written a book on the subject, writes about it. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the changes to our bodies itself, right? Uh, and I'm, I've, I thought of the concept of transhumanism. You know, I mean, what would that look like? I mean, is it like the board from Star Trek? I mean, how do you see it entering into our lives? We embrace it voluntarily or, or, or is it going to be forced on us? Well, uh, you know, when we talk about us as we're genetically modified, where is the us? Where do we find this us? You know, we, our consciousness has changed. Uh, let's say, you know, in the modern world, somebody decides, hey, we've got a lot of nuclear plants that are um, dangerous and that may leak. And uh, so what are we going to do with these nuclear plants that are contaminated and might be hit by a plane and spread the contamination, the radioactive contamination? Well, why don't we breed a particular type of person who can go into that environment and somehow uh, be able to go into nuclear plants and clean them up and, and not fall dead immediately as, as, as a, a, a natural person would. I mean, there's all kinds of military industrial purposes to change people. Uh, some view the idea that this is an injection. It's establishing the precedent that you can inject nanotechnology into people. Uh, that you can create a, a new platform for you know, various sorts of uh, genetic and biological uh, modifications. Uh, and so transhumanism, I guess the sky is the limit. Uh, and to see people you know, coming out and now announcing this, of course, unfortunately, what is happening across the board in so many ways in this uh, situation is that we're finding about out about new technologies. We're having a discussion on artificial intelligence, for instance. Where when do you see you know on CBC uh, a discussion about all the options available to us through artificial intelligence? There may be nightmare scenarios. There might be some good ones, uh, but there is no uh, opening presented to us to consider how to use these new technologies, we're being forced into a situation and denied a say. Uh, one of the things I notice about the whole COVID phenomenon is nobody ever came and asked us our opinion about what should be done. Uh, there was no consultation. And now the people uh, running it, the show, they don't really have to invoke parliament and they don't really have to answer questions. And uh, all the old rules are being changed uh, and uh, so we've got, uh, you know, if you, if you don't like 
Jagmeet Singh and uh, Pierre Trudeau, you know, the, what, what's the chances of, of doing anything that will get them out of office? Yeah, well, that uh, there's really nothing uh, to do. And there really are no checks uh, on our on, on our rulers anymore. Well, it seems as if uh, the, the, the march towards a, a kind of technocratic neo-feudalism uh, it seems to be inevitable. I mean, there's no, the, the left doesn't seem to be on side. I don't get the sense that the unions are uh, opposing it either. So, I mean, well, are, that's, I thought what are we the were signs of the humanity that will fight back? Yeah, well, that's what, uh, you know, we expect of the left. Uh, and, uh, but what we see is, uh, well, I think it goes back to 9-11 you know, the people who saw through 9-11 and realized we weren't being told the truth on 9-11 could clearly see that COVID, we're not really being told the truth on that. Uh, and so many of the people who, you know, saw through 9-11 quickly see through this current round of fraud and fakery. Uh, but the left never did come along with us on 9-11. Noam Chomsky, you know, announced to the left that it was somehow uh, unseemly to look into 9-11, to question 9-11. And now the left, you know, as embodied by, say, the NDP, they want more masking. They want more lockdowns. They want more jabbing. Uh, you know, they have a very uh, sort of authoritarian approach to this. You know, just trust the state and the, 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 the state will do the right thing automatically. So, you know, we, we, we don't have the unions. We have the left in a kind of state of disarray called woke. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we, we, there's lots of opposition to uh, what's going forward, but we're not organized. It's, you know, we, there's no political parties who represent this position. There's no uh, unions or very few unions that represent this political position. There's no professional associations, you know, Wall Street and the corporations and the Biden government and the philanthropies, there's this great big consensus and the left has identified itself uh, with, with that consensus and sort of runs interference for it. I mean, there was a time in the eighties when the left had a vision of class struggle and there was an understood to be a ruling class and a working class and the ruling class is exploiting the working class and uh, that's not good, that should be opposed. And, th and then there was an effort to try to unify people and create senses of solidarity. So the working class as a big group could exercise some influence. Then came identity politics and the idea that you have to be in a certain group to speak for a certain group. And the whole uh, opposition, the oppositional politics were kind of a balkanized and broken down into this identity politics, which as a professor of Native American studies, you know, I was in, involved in that. I was involved in the, you know, being a social justice warrior on the left. Uh, at least that's how I would have liked to picture myself. But then, you know, somehow I feel alien from the people who I used to identify with. Somehow I feel abandoned and I, I, and I feel uh, that there is a, a failure of you know, colleagues in the university, for instance, to do like independent research, to get away from the television, to get away from the CBC, 
Uh, and uh, you know, the, the NDP is under Jagmeet Singh has become a terrifically hostile agency, you know, disliking working people, looking down at working people. And that was epitomized by the truckers, you know, who are obviously working people and many other working people identified with the truckers. And when they came across Canada, we saw amazing scenes of, you know, popular movement among communities of people identifying with these truckers and giving them their love and support, letters to take to Ottawa and whatnot. They get to Ottawa and suddenly, oh, the people who work there, we, we don't like working class people among us. We have it nice here. We have it comfortable. Sure, we're the nation's capital, but just stay away. Just come for the odd little vacation days. We don't like you actually organizing and trying to assert your voice. And so the treatment of the truckers, you know, aroused working class people and decent, decent people around the world. And now they're being criminalized. Yeah. And now they're in jail. Can... And, and, and this authoritative regi regime, you know, gives itself a pass to break more laws, to uh, kill more people, to you know, make sure they're unaware that there is uh, a plethora of deaths happening uh, connected to this vaccine and injuries. And that's the situation we've got to address. And we're doing so in a much more lonely condition than should be the case. I, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to, to speak to us. And thanks, Michael. And thanks for all you do okay. and your dedication to your work. Thank you. Uh, we've been speaking to Dr. Anthony Hall, a professor emeritus of globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge, and he spoke to us from his home in Lethbridge. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. May has been a month of nostalgia memories and recommitments to labor struggle in Canada, but we need to look beyond the past and, and take a hard look at the present and the future. Uh, we're bringing on three esteemed guests to comment on how the direction which seems to be profiting the very rich can be reversed. Richard D. Wolf is an American Marxian economist known for his work on economic methodology and class analysis. He's Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and currently a visiting professor in the graduate program in the international affairs of the new school in New York. He's host, creator, and writer of Economic Update with Richard D. Wolf. His groundbreaking work book, Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism, inspired the creation of Democracy at Work, a nonprofit organization dedicated to showing how and why uh, to make democratic workplaces real. She's an activist based in Quebec City and a sought-after facilitator. She presents regularly on social media and online security and privacy. She's personally involved with, she authored Take Back the Fight, Organizing Feminism in the Digital Age, and Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic. He's been a member of the Canadian Association of Public Employees for Local in Manitoba and 10 years as national president. He's also got a battle. Thank you all for joining me. We're entering a uh, hundred years ago, more and more, Employment is part-time. It's getting who get workers who are too demanding of their worker rights. They can reload global south. And then there's the increasing dependence on foreign temporary prison labor in the States. That's all before the pandemic. See the trends accelerate. So, so what is your sense of how the labor, a more equitable future, or does it get worse before it gets better? Uh, Richard, I'll, okay, I'll start. In the interest of brevity, I will avoid the details and try to make the biggest points that I can. 
Uh, I was born in Ohio. I've lived and worked all my life in the United States. I'm a professor of economics. And I want to tell you a brief story in the first half of my three or four minutes here. And the story is because I went to all the elite universities in this country, uh, I'm connected to all of these people. You know, my classmate at Yale uh, was Janet Yellen and she's now the treasury secretary, et cetera, et cetera. So I get together with these friends of mine because we're personally friends, even though our ideological paths have diverged. And here's what we've all noticed in the last couple of years when we have a cup of coffee or dinner together. We all don't agree on how the United States uh, got into the current situation it's in, and we don't agree on how to get out of it. But here's the sentence we all agree on. This is the worst condition of American capitalism in our lifetimes. And we were as astonished as you can imagine as we heard each other say that to one another. So the reality is that the problems of capitalism, the relationships between employers and employees, the relationship with nature that we call the climate crisis, the fact that the United States is capitalism and Western Europe now for the first time in a century as a real competitor, namely the People's Republic of China, these are a set of problems for which this system is unprepared and which it is not able to cope with. Now the other half of the equation. There is a greater level of labor militancy in the United States than I have ever seen in my lifetime. Whether it's low paid workers in a Starbucks or a Burger King, uh, and I mentioned brands that, that folks in Canada will know just as well as we do, if not better, um, whether it's that or whether it's university professors who are unionizing on a rate never before seen, even in the 1930s in this country, you are seeing working people, sometimes with the established unions, often outside of the established unions, saying they're not going to tolerate the shifting of the burden of a declining U.S. capitalism onto the backs of the working class. That's the central idea. They will not tolerate it anymore. And they are seeing a labor movement as a major way to make a progress to stop that process. And in the, in the process of doing that, there is an openness to going beyond capitalism that is likewise deeper and wider than anything I have seen in my lifetime. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Nora, how are things looking uh, out there in, in Quebec City? Actually, you're, you're so well formatted across the country. Mm -hmm. well, what are you seeing in terms of you know, the, the ways forward? Yeah, well, I think that the uh, I'm, I'm happy that you started uh, with Richard because that dose of optimism is an excellent way to to, to start this conversation. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see the same things to be optimistic about in Canada yet, but there does tend to be a lag, I think, between things that we see happening in the United States and things that we see happening in Canada. Because, of, of course, you know, we know several unionization drives are under in different parts of Canada in Amazon facilities. And so those uh, you know, hopefully very likely will be successful, but that will take time. Um, I think that 
you know, if you were asking this question in 2019, I would have a very different answer than, uh, the, the, than, than the answer that I have now, which is that we've just experienced and are still experiencing this massive traumatic situation you know, I was out in Regina uh, last week at a, at a SEIU West convention and hearing the workers talk about um, what they've endured during this pandemic. And of course, SEIU West represents mostly healthcare workers, but, you know, other, other kinds of public sector workers as well. Um, and there was no solutions, you know, in the prairie provinces, there's no political solutions because there's very weak NDP uh, um, opposition parties. There's very strong uh, conservative parties. And, um, and, and there's a lot of hopelessness. And so this is where I think the labor movement needs to um, see its role right now as organizing workers, as organizing outside of the partisan structures, because I think that the partisan structures are not going to serve us very well in the next couple of years, and, and find a way to orient this trauma into organizing. Because if workers are expected to just swallow the trauma that they've experienced in the last two years, it will be poisonous. It will not be uh, productive. It could be actually destructive. And we are seeing some, some parts of that with the rise of the far right. Um, but I don't think union leadership has its head wrapped around what exactly to do. And I don't think that um, radical workers who are trying to organize at the rank and file uh, are, are, are sure of what to do either. <laughs> there seems to be this moment of a lot of head scratching and looking around for someone else to, to, to kind of light the match that might start the flame that might ignite something bigger than us all. So I think that's where we, that's where we are really across Canada. And, and I don't know if Paul has exciting things that he's, that he's looking at that he wants to mention, but uh, I, I think that those are coming, but I don't think that we have this um, wonderful uh, resurgence that we're seeing in the United States yet. Yeah. Well, I know Paul is one of the most optimistic people I know actually, but uh, you know, Paul, why don't you dig into this uh, issue a little bit? Well, talking about the present moment in both countries, uh, you need to step back a bit. And in both of our countries, the United States and Canada, the trade union movement was born out of a, a huge economic downturn in the 1930s. In both countries, in the 30s and 40s, workers acquired rights to organize. And they exercised those rights to the point by the mid to late 1950s, in both countries, just over three out of 10 workers were organized. Real wages grew beyond the rate of inflation and social wages grew. In the Canadian context, the advent of Medicare, a modern post-secondary system that was accessible, and a whole range of public services in both countries. So for my parents' generation, my father who worked from 1940 to 1985, he had a period of social wages and real wages growing. The last 40 years in both countries uh, have been difficult for labor. Real wages in decline. We're still in historic, notwithstanding recent events that uh, both panelists just spoke about, we're at historically low periods of strike and lockout in both countries. Not because workers aren't frustrated, but because workers' rights to engage in strike and lockout uh, are severely diminished, particularly in the United States. Over half the states in America are right-to-work states. It's an act of courage to step towards union organizing, and the deck is stacked against you. The union-busting industry, an author, a book I read recently, $200 million a year is spent pushing back against workers who want to organize. And so uh, we have uh, declining union density that to, to finish in this, particularly in the U.S., 
one in 10 workers are organized. Only 6% of the private sector is organized. It's not as bad in Canada, but we've been stuck at the 30% union density rate. And in the private sector in Canada, it's 16%, but the graph line is following America. It's only a decade or 15 years behind America. So we have declining union density, the deck kind of stacked against workers. And I'll end with a, two sentences from Jane McAlevey, which kind of place all of this in context. Unions are under increasing pressure from extraordinary external forces, but unions are dying from the inside out. And I would agree with McAlevey's take on it, which is maybe why we have workers forming independent unions to organize at Amazon. Maybe the only way to nail that organizing drive in New Jersey was to have Amazon workers themselves doing what McAlevey calls deep organizing, but that independent new union won't have deep enough pockets to take on one of the richest corporations and one of the richest people on the planet. So I'm very pessimistic about workers' ability to push back given the strength of capital, the, the deck is stacked against workers and it'll take much more unity than is visible right now. Okay, uh, I want to talk. Uh, take a, a subject that's maybe a little bit more controversial, but uh, there was a moment where here in Canada, where, where the, the state opposed the, the freedom convoy, the, the left by and large denounced it as fascistic and hate-filled, but at the same time, it was actually attracting support from ordinary Canadians, I, I think. I mean, I mean, was that an instance of working class struggle? And, and if not, well, what lessons could the left learn from it to focus on, say, ending poverty or, or ending homelessness or, or transitioning away from fossil fuels? Because, I mean, it was something that, um, yeah, I mean, vaccination, maybe that's a little bit more uh, controversial. But, I mean, Richard, why don't you take uh, a crack at this? Sure. Um, for me, I was happy that the truck drivers of Canada did what they did, because for me, it represented militancy, it represented action, it represented something very important beyond sitting and grousing over a glass of beer. It meant organization. And I understand that the right wing tried very hard to deflect it and to control it. I'm not surprised the right wing does that as a matter of course, it would do it with any kind of upsurge. The problem is that the left wing didn't do the, its homework, did not try to get in there on a better level than it did. There were some efforts, of course, uh, but we need to learn how and why we could and should do better in uh, appealing to and relating to any kind of upsurge uh, of the working class. If I could respond to something Paul said that's related, I believe that the labor movement by itself cannot recover because of what was existing in the 30s that doesn't exist now, but could be recreated. And what I'm talking about is an organic between the labor movement on the one hand and the left wing, the socialists, the communists, the Marxists, whatever you want to call them in the larger community. That was an alliance that worked in the United States, not without friction, not without difficulty, not without, you know, good and bad fighting. But the reality was the CIO, two socialist parties and a communist party worked together. And what the socialists and communists did was the active, if I can use the language, mobilization of ideology and consciousness. 
that was the parallel to the organizing in the workplace that the unions undertook. Okay. If we can rebuild that alliance, which was destroyed by the McCarthy anti-communist Cold War period that's now behind us, or at least in part behind us, if we can recreate that alliance, that will be a crucial, it'll be crucial for those of us on the left to have the alliance with labor, but it will be just as crucial for labor to have us working in the media, in the schools, in all the places of culture and ideology to create the awarenesses that the unions can then appeal to. That okay. coalition is forming in the United States early on, but it's forming. And that's the ground of my optimism. Okay, Nora, I want you to, to, to get in on this. I, I mean, you're a yeah. lot closer to the Ottawa uh, event. And so you, I, I imagine you, you saw it up close. I, I think you, you've definitely had a, a different take on this. Um, maybe you can go into that. I mean, what, what could we yeah. learn from them and so on? Yeah, you know, so I disagree with Richard. I don't think that there is anything that we could look to in Canada um, and, and call a working class uprising within the truckers' protests. Um, everything from their leadership, who are known far right agitators, uh, right down to the fact that Canada's working class is not as white as the trucker convoy was, um, demonstrated that it was it was not a true working class uprising. Um, and we can talk about how the far right managed to capture that audience so effectively. Um, although I know we don't have enough time to probably get too much into that, but there are definitely lessons that we need to learn uh, to see the borders shut down for as long as they were shut down. Obviously, left wing people in this country would not have uh, been given such latitude by um, state security forces. But there are many things that we need to learn from uh, the way that the truckers organized uh, the need for occupations and taking up space and creating community and bringing people together. And, and this is where I, I would agree with what Richard was saying. The, the, the left of during the pandemic far too often um, sided with uh, what, what liberals were telling us to do, which was, you know, stay home, self-isolate and keep yourself safe from this pandemic because the vaccine was the only way that we are going to get out of it. Of course, when the a vaccine demonstrated that it was not the only way we were going to get out of it, there was no way for the left to pivot and find ways to bring people together to actually organize against um, policies that were anti-worker, where we've seen people being fired for not being vaccinated and this kind of uh, coming together. And so when the, the, these, these trucker convoys emerged in January 2022, and they held these carnivalesque events, you know, in Quebec City, it coincided with carnival. Um, and so, you know, it was this, this amazing show of people um, you know, mocking the state, making fun of the state, taking over roads. As much as the people at the heart of the organizing are the same fascists that we've been fighting in the streets of Quebec City for the last five years, there was a spirit there that the left has not tapped into and has not tried to organize like. Um, and so I think that we have to ask ourselves why. We have to ask ourselves what is the what is the what is stopping us from getting into the street, taking over. And where do we find that that militantism um, that has been so lost and 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 really conceded to the far right okay. uh, in the last um, in the last number of years? Well, I think workers aligning with other progressive groups to uh, reclaim public spaces to make points around inequality or whatever the issue is a much needed thing in our country. I don't believe the so-called truckers convoy was a worker-led issue in any way, shape, or form in Canada. Um, Fox News and others from the U.S. were interested in the truckers' convoy because it was a really an anti-vax movement. Um, I spoke to a few, couple of unions who represent truckers, and we didn't hear any of these worker issues uh, in February. 
immigrants make up about one third of truckers in Canada. They weren't visible uh, uh, in Ottawa or Winnipeg or elsewhere. Uh, predatory recruitment scams, inadequate training, no rest breaks, lack of paid sick leave, employer theft of wages. None of these trucker issues uh, uh, emerged in the streets of Ottawa. It was uh, about anti-vax policies led by the far right and white supremacist groups. So, uh, but I, I, I do uh, uh, agree that Richard made a very important point when he talked about the need to build a bigger tent. And I've read some recent uh, work by Nora about uh, social movement organizing as the only way forward for uh, Canadian workers and Canadians. And I would agree with that. Social unionism where trade unions don't look inwards, but look outwards and align themselves with environmentalists, with uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, with indigenous groups, with all kinds of groups in society who have legitimate grievances and are making themselves visible, I think is the way forward. And interestingly, the pandemic, um, I actually think the main lesson of the pandemic is not one of anti-vax protest. I think the main story of the pandemic has been one of solidarity. Uh, public health by and large worked in Canada uh, the state assumed uh, the payroll for over 30% of the workforce, 6 million workers uh, forced to go off the job. And unlike the pandemic in 1918, 1919, the Spanish flu, where workers were left on their own, in this case, the full weight of the state was brought to bear. And uh, I actually think if we if we took the lessons of the pandemic, what's really important in society? Is it extreme wealth? No, it's the person stocking shelves in the grocery store, the person tending to your bed in a nursing home, all these essential workers undervalued in society. And uh, my hope would be as a trade unionist that the trade union movement does exactly what Richard and Laura uh, have, uh, Nora have argued about, and that is build a bigger tent, build a social movement that cannot be ignored that can change uh, the inequality measure to make more equality in our country and to deal with the legitimate grievances of all other groups, uh, including the ones I mentioned. You know, one of the things that I would think was a, a very favorable event, and that would be the, uh, the, the Indian general strike. I mean, there were 200 million people striking for the, uh, basically in solidarity with the farmers. I mean, that's several times more than the, the population of Canada. So I, I was wondering, is, that, is there an instance there where we can somehow learn from that? Can we interact with them? I mean, how can we make this you know happen in such a way that's going to benefit everyone you know you might say like what, what can we learn from that if anything or 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 has the ruling class just so totally uh kept us from being able to organize in that way what do you think yeah I, well i think first of all like international connections and international solidarity is that uh, is, is at a low point um despite the fact that of course among canadians there's so many personal and political and ideological connections with uh, with people around the world, but 
to 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 harness global struggles and to to be inspired by them and to you know build off of them or or make local connections with them like that that's something that really hasn't been a hallmark of leftist organizing all that much in the last uh decade for sure and probably even the last two decades you know ever since um ever since the the the, the collapse of the globalization uh, anti-globalization movements uh, internationalism is something that you know exists, of course, in some uh, pockets of the left, but there's not a, a generalized, um, I think, affinity with with massive struggles that are happening outside of our borders. And so, with the case with the workers in India, when you, when you have this incredible show of worker power against an authoritarian government um, that will probably respond to nothing else. Uh, than uh, massive shows of worker power, uh, you know, you would think that we'd be able to make those kinds of connections in Canada, but I, 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 I don't think that we have enough people that can, uh, whether it's translate those kinds of connections or popularize them or allow people to make the links themselves. And instead, we've got solidarity movements that tend to focus on issues themselves. So obviously, longstanding solidarity with Palestine and, and longstanding solidarity with other uh, kinds of struggles. And so when these things bubble up, and you know, you think right now of Sri Lanka, what's going on in Sri Lanka? Um, I'm whether, uh, whether Tamil or Sinhalese talking about what is, what's happening in Sri Lanka, again, this has not gotten into the general kind of consciousness of what's happening among leftists. And so um, rebuilding internationalism, I think is very important. Um, and it was, it was too bad. Like the, the pandemic was a really important moment, I think, for us to have, to have looked internationally and to look at how other countries were dealing with, with COVID and, and how we were messing things up. And even then it was very, very difficult, which I guess gets you back to the last part of your question, which is like, are the powers that be stopping this or making this very difficult? And I, you know, I think that like, yes, of course, there's always going to be some sort of interruption between uh, us and what's happening outside of Canada. And that's done through um, media, um, very specific tactics within the media or um, the way that our governments interact with other uh, governments around the world or other people around the world. But, you know, at some level, it does just fall to, 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 to progressive activists that have not been able to maintain a level of, of internationalism that, um, that used to be so present uh, in leftist spaces in Canada. Well, I do think uh, uh, you mentioned Indian farmers and, uh, and, and others around the planet. I do think uh, workers instinctively know that their lot in life is tied up uh, together and we need to learn lessons from those other workers around the world and to push back against, uh, you know, the right. Uh, Steve Bannon, uh, the architect of Trump's victory in 2016, he says the goal of politics is not to persuade people, it's to motivate. And so they feed, pe they feed into people's fears and their poverty and their lack of, of, a, of any standard of living, and they tap into their anger, and we see workers turning towards right-wing populists such as Trump. Uh, we need to provide people... Uh, uh, legitimate avenues for their anger to lock horns with farmers, if you will, uh, indigenous people, all kinds of groups in society have legitimate grievances. And if we leave it to the populist right, or frankly, the far, far populist left, we won't win. We actually need to provide spaces for people to come together to respect one another's issues in the case of workers, wages and income, social wages, and in the case of indigenous people, their legitimate issues, you build that rainbow coalition uh, and it will be unstoppable. So I do remain hopeful that workers won't succumb to the garbage from the far right, the populist far right, 
the Fox News far right, I do think people can and will be motivated to uh, join together, but it's going to take leadership at all levels on the left and the progressive left. In terms of expanding to other realities, uh, like the indigenous folks and uh, or, you know the indigenous peoples, uh, black solidarity, uh, people who are you know, it's more than just working class. Are are you seeing gains there in spite of everything that's going on, or or, or is it somehow you know working class over here and great racial discrimination? issues over here and that sort of thing but yeah well as i said in the in the in the question in the response to the question about the freedom convoy you know canada's working class is 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 is, is racialized right it's it's diverse it's not majority white um and so i think that there's not much sense in dividing the conversation between class or working class issues and and in racialized people's issues or anti-black racism or indigenous uh, struggles because they're, they're so intertwined. I mean, maybe you know, colonization is a little bit outside of the regular class kind of discussion only because it's the basis of everything and it touches everything. Uh, but of course, class touches everything as well, and racism touches everything as well. And so I think like you know, there's a lot of really exciting um, uh, liberation struggles that are happening. Obviously, the land defense at Wet'suwet'en continues, and it's inspiring. And uh, we're seeing ostensibly left-wing governments in, in John Horgan's government trying to crush it uh, using um, militarized RCMP presence. Yeah, and then of course there's the folks at uh, at 1492 Landback Lane who are also doing incredible work, and that's that's in uh, at Six Nations of the Grand in southwestern Ontario. Um, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm from that part of the world. So I, I, I pay really close attention to, to the struggle that's going on there. Um, and I think, you know, at, at Landback Lane, um, what that has, has helped to foster is this incredible solidarity between organized labor and the land defenders there. Um, there's been a very special relationship that's developed specifically with uh, the Ontario Federation of Labor, uh, with activists uh, specifically involved with CUPE, uh, the Canadian Union of Public Employees. And, um, and their solidarity has helped to uh, bring prominence to, has helped bring money to, um, has created relationships and friendships that I think are really, really important. And, um, and you know, who knows what's going to happen next within those movements and, 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 and specifically with the fight to, to protect Land Back Lane. But uh, the, the, the relationships uh, and the solidarity built between Indigenous activists or Haudenosaunee activists there and um, and labor, I think, are are really inspiring and really should form the foundation of an, of another or a new way of doing things in this country. You just heard a discussion with Professor Richard Wolf, activist Nora Loretto, and retired union member Paul Moist regarding the various charges ahead for labor and the mechanisms by which they could be confronted. That brings our discussion for today to a close. Next week, we will be taking a look at the major famine facing our Earth. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.